Well, hello there, little masters, and welcome back to the Prancing Pony Podcast, where today, here in the common room, we're closing out season three with not one, but two legendary scholars in the field of Tolkien studies. And we truly cannot wait to introduce them to you. But first, I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who may be a legend, but isn't quite a legendary scholar, Alan Sisto. <laughs> That's still far too generous, Sean, but I accept. Folks, today we are welcoming Wayne Hammond and Christina Skull to the podcast. Now, I don't think there's one of you listening who doesn't have a book on your shelf that's either written by, edited by, or at least has a contribution from these two scholars. They're librarians, researchers, and writers, and they also happen to be husband and wife. And between them, they've written or edited at least a dozen books on Tolkien and many more articles, working in collaboration with each other for almost 25 years. Their works include some of our favorites, such as The Lord of the Rings, A Reader's Companion, The J.R.R. Tolkien Companion and Guide, and a number of books showcasing Tolkien's art, such as J.R.R. Tolkien, Artist and Illustrator, The Art of the Hobbit, and The Art of the Lord of the Rings. And of course, they've also edited a number of Tolkien's works for publication, including Roverandum, Farmer Giles of Ham, and The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. And Wayne has brought you the most complete bibliography on the publications of J.R.R. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, A Descriptive Bibliography. Their work has received numerous well-deserved accolades and awards, including nine scholarship awards from the Mythopoeic Society between the two of them. Good heavens. And the the 2018 (laughs) Tolkien Society Award for Best Website for their blog, Too Many Books and Never Enough. Never enough, indeed. Well, that was a long introduction, granted, but they are very accomplished guests. We are truly honored and very excited to have them on the show today and bring them to you. So, Wayne Hammond and Christina Skull, let me be the first to say, welcome to the Prancing Pony Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having us. Thank you. That is really our pleasure. Sean, I think you've got the first question up. Why don't we go ahead and start? Uh, I do. And and again, I just want to say thank you both for joining us. It, It really is an honor to have you here. But we'll go ahead and jump into questions. And we always like to start with a little getting to know you question for all of our guests. So I'd like to ask both of you, and you can take turns answering this or answer this together, however you prefer. But I'd like to ask when and how did you each first discover Tolkien's work? And then when and how did you make the first step towards becoming scholars and researchers, as opposed to just enjoying his work as fans like so many of us? Well, we're looking at each other right now. You know, who was going to start? <laughs> uh, actually, Christina, you, you have you uh, read Tolkien before I did, so you may go first. Well, I began in 1955 when The Two Towers was out and before The Return of the King came out. It was recommended to me by a librarian. I, my parents let me use the, the adult library. I had their tickets and I used to get books from there. And a young librarian came up to me and she said, I think you'll like this. But she mm-hmm. showed me The Two Towers. And of course, it was the second volume. And I looked at it and I thought, well, yeah, I will. But I'll wait till I can read the first one. Mm-hmm. Now, I know I can date it correctly for several things. I can, or rather, I could in the past remember. And now I remember remembering. I asked my <laughs> mother, what happens if he dies before he finishes it? Oh. Well, he didn't. Thankfully. But strangely enough, I can't remember reading The Return of the King the first time. Hmm. But I do know that I kept on reading it and reading it. And then there came a time in the autumn of 1956 when I was reading again and I couldn't renew The Return of the King. Hmm. I was horrified at the library and I had just enough pocket money to allow me to go and buy my own copy, which I still have. Hmm. And I spent the next two months pocket money 
plus the extra money my father gave me if I got a good class list Mm. every month at school Mm. and bought the next two volumes. So I have my own set. And this was before the days of the paperback. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, Mm -hmm. they're hardcover. So that was me. I've been gradually bought the things as they came out, Mm -hmm. got to know them, and enjoyed it. But it wasn't until Brian Sibley's BBC broadcasting that I listened to that and I thought, I've got to go back. And I looked at all the books that were out. I wanted to collect every different variant cover. Mm. I wanted to collect every piece of information I could and started putting together what I thought would be a complete library of Tolkien and a complete library of everything written about him. Mm. This is the slippery slope of the collector, you understand. Far too familiar. This is where it starts. Yeah, I can already hear sort of the seeds. Yeah. I mean, it were things like I put together scrapbooks of cuttings, I was interested in reviews. Charles Node, who was the mm-hmm. bibliographer mm-hmm. of the Tolkien Society, and I got permission from Rainer Unwin, and we went up to where they had they, a lot of their records were kept, okay. and we were allowed to photocopy all the press reviews and press cuttings about Tolkien wow. that, they, that Alan and Unwin had. Mm, wow. Long ago lost in one of the takeovers. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I have my set put into scrapbooks. Yeah, so when you see Tom Shippey in one of the Landseer films Lancia. Uh, mm-hmm. about Tolkien at around the time of the Tolkien centenary, when he's looking at a scrapbook and reading it, that's one of Christina's scrapbooks. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> wow. But, uh, you know, publishers sometimes being businesses, sure. they dumped the originals. Oh. So there you were. You were at the 81 BBC Lord of the Rings on the radio, and you're buying new things. And then... Well, I continued buying. You joined the Tolkien Society. I joined the Tolkien Society. And because I wanted everything, I also joined Beyond Brie. Mm-hmm. And when okay. I first wrote to Nancy Marsh, in, I mentioned in my first letter that the Book of Lost Tales Part 1, I think, had just come. They came out earlier in England than America. There was about three or four months gap in the, for the first ones. That that was out. And she said, well, please write a review Hmm. And I did write a review for each of the volumes as it came out, and that was very important. Hmm. But I think Wayne can bring us up to a bit more up to date on that now, on your side of it. Okay. Oh, on my side. So that it. would have started, I think, Christina, the, the mid 1980s, then I think we're up to it. Early point, 80s, right? yeah. Yeah, mid early 1980s. Yeah. Right. Uh, after the 81 BBC radio. Right, yeah. For me, I started in, I think, 1970. Mm-hmm. I was, I think, a junior in high school. And. Back in those days, nearly every place that you would go, nearly every shop had a rack of paperbacks. And I remember I was in what we would now call a home improvement store, but back in the day we called a lumber yard. Right. Uh, and they had they had a rack of paperbacks, and they had hmm. the Ballantine Lord of the Rings. Better than the Ace paperbacks. But, right? Yes. <laughs> I think they'd been supplanted by then. That they'd run out of copies. And I saw they had the two towers in the Return of the King, and I thought these are very intriguing covers. And I also remembered seeing the the title, The Lord of the Rings, written on the chalkboard at school because somebody apparently had done a book review in an mm. earlier session in the, in the same room. So on a whim, I bought those, and I think those were something like sixty five cents at the time. <laughs> uh, wow, takes you back. Yeah, yeah. And then I had then I had to go out looking for volume one. Mm-hmm. Of course. I found the Fellowship of the Ring in a grocery store, and I bought that. But before I found that, I was at a drugstore, and I found 
the enchanting prelude to the Lord of the oh, Rings. I yes. thought, oh, I didn't know about The Hobbit. <laughs> so I, I thought I'd better have this first. And that same place had Lynn Carter's uh, Look Behind the Lord of the Rings. Oh, wow. Okay. One oh, right. of the yep. earliest yeah. books of criticism, which is not thought much of, but it was a fascinating thing at the time because mm-hmm. there really wasn't much else. Right. So I, I took those home and I read those. I liked The Hobbit well enough, but The Lord of the Rings was something very different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I began to read that every year, much to the amusement of some of my classmates in school, <laughs> uh, because I kept reading it into college. And then I started to buy books because of Tolkien, yeah. partly because of Lynn Carter, because Carter had talked about Tolkien sources or analogs. Mm. It was enough that I started to, to buy books and fill up what was then maybe two shelves, mm-hmm. which is, is a tiny fraction of course. Oh, yes, of course. Now. Right, of course, yeah. <laughs> I have a photograph of my uh, shelves back then, and I thought that was a lot of books at the time. <laughs> so I, I started to buy books, and I started to become interested in the arrangement of books so that <laughs> after I got over wanting to be an English teacher, partly because I didn't like the level of politics that I mm. saw going into, yeah. <laughs> into college teaching, yeah. I decided to go to library school, uh, as we used to call it, and uh, became a librarian. And while I was in library school, for my amusement, and this tells you what librarians do for amusement, I spent time in the library, <laughs> and I, I discovered a brief bibliography that someone had done. It was a bibliography of Tolkien's writings and of writings about Tolkien, mm-hmm. which there were far fewer then oh, than yeah. there are now. Right, and this right. was, we're, not, we're now talking 1975. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I decided that because this was dated by a few years, that I would write a supplement. Oh. Hmm. And that was the first bibliographical work I did. And lo and behold, it actually was published in 1976, I think, just, just about when I, wow. when I went to Williams College as assistant in the Chapin Library of Rare Books. Okay. And it was that experience that led me to think, well, there has never been a... a what we would call a descriptive bibliography mm-hmm. of Tolkien's writings, right. whereby, uh, if you know the work, every one of Tolkien's writings, uh, at least of the books, is described physically, right. as well as uh, with an account of their publication history, mm-hmm. which right. had not been done except as of 1977, insofar as, as Humphrey Carpenter included some details in his biography. Mm-hmm. So I, I started to work on that you know, privately as a hobby, and then a few years later, I was actually contacted, or I think the Tolkien Society was contacted first by man who was running St. Paul's Bibliographies in Winchester, England, oh. who had wanted a bibliography of Tolkien. So they got in touch with me. The Tolkien Society got in touch with me. But Douglas Anderson was also working privately on a Tolkien bibliography. Mm-hmm. So we decided to join forces. Doug had worked largely on the periodical literature. Hmm. He'd done a lot of work beyond what Carpenter had done. And I was working mainly on the books because I I had the professional training in descriptive bibliography. Mm -hmm. With library science, right. Yes. Eventually, Doug went on to other work, especially The Annotated Hobbit, Mm -hmm. which was, of course, a major and important project. Mm -hmm. And I went on and and, uh, completed the bibliography, which came out in 1993. Mm -hmm. I've done some uh, 
addenda and core agenda since mm -hmm. then. Of course, the question everyone asks me is, when is the second edition <laughs> going to come out? Uh, because it's been a while. It has. Since yeah. 1993. Mm -hmm, right. And a lot of Tolkien has been published. That's true. And the answer I always give is, well, someday. <laughs> but HarperCollins has kept us busy oh, yes. with other Tolkien right. projects. Yeah. And uh, those are things that you don't want to say no to. No, no you're right. So that was how I got reading Tolkien. and. Christina had had her experience. Right. And then those two sort of came together at the time of the Tolkien Centenary Conference. Well, we met, we met before that yes. at a Tolkien Society meeting. I mean, you were told you should come and see my collection because even at that point it was it was growing fast. So that came up. But at this, just about the same time, the Tolkien Society and also to certainly said the Mythopoeic Society, mm -hmm. were thinking of the centenary of Tolkien's birth coming right. up. Right. They finally decided to, to have a, one conference, but with the Tolkien Society doing most of the organising. Right. Because it was in England. England yeah. Yes. And I was, was on the committee for a year or two, and then the person who was chair of the committee wanted to go into politics. I don't know whether oh we my. ever succeeded, but <laughs> anyway... The, he was an elected member of the Talking Society, and the, and the society, if you have a subcommittee, there must be at least one member on it, and preferably the person in charge who is an elected member of the society. Right. And it was suggested okay. that I should become one of the elected members. So I became chair of the committee for the Centenary Conference. Well, that, of course, I had already... And through that, I, I was dealing with the guests and writing to, to them the people we were who were we were paying to have there. Um, right. I also got to know Joy Hill, who had act sec mm. secretarial work. Yeah, mm -hmm. she actually lived ten minutes walk from me, huh. and Donald Swan lived five minutes walk from me. Oh my god! Well, I also got to oh, know wow. Joy very well, and yeah. she also entertained Wayne and let him see all her books to help with the bibliography. Mm. I also had got to know Raina. A little bit, and of course, okay. joined you, Raina, very well. Oh, well, yeah. Mm -hmm. And at this point, Wayne had submitted, was asking permission for his bibliography to be published because he wanted lots of quotes. Sure. Yes. Well, and I got Rainer to write a, a brief forward for the bibliography, and Rainer also gave me permission, both of us permission, to look at the Allen and Unwin records, mm. some of which uh, ended up at the University of Reading. We spent huh. some time in their basement going through the publisher's records. Oh, okay. Okay. And also correspondence that uh, we looked at actually in their their offices as they were being dismantled Ooh. because they'd been Unwin Hyman at the time and, and HarperCollins mm. had bought Unwin Hyman. Right. Okay. So the bibliography was underway. It was going to be published, we knew, at, at the time of the Centenary Conference. And you know, people were looking forward to that. Yeah. And as chairman for the Tolkien Society, I sat next to Christopher at the conference banquet. Oh. I'd also been in contact with him before because I had dealt with any correspondence with the guests I dealt with as the chair. Right. Okay. And just before that, just before the conference started, or on the same day rather, the earlier Bodleian exhibition done by Judith Priestman opened. Mm -hmm. And I'd had a quick look of it on the evening before the main conference started. Right. And, of course, I had to make um, 
conversation, polite conversation <laughs> sure. with Christopher. Of course. He also happened knew that I had, in fact, a degree in history of art because I was work. He knew that I worked at the museum in London, mm-hmm. and he had the contacts in case he needed me. And in fact, he did need me on one occasion because the French Post had sent the, the signed labels which he'd supplied for the members of the conference. They, they'd sent mm-hmm. it back to him at his home address. Oh, <laughs> but anyway, I said to him, you know, I made a couple of comments to him. People were always criticizing the history of Middle Earth. Why do they want to dig into all this? Or at least. Mm-hmm. Some people were. And I would say, where I work, which was a museum, Sir John Soane Museum, which has the drawings of one of England's major architects, people will do a whole PhD on one building. Right. Why can't you do that on a book? Right. And I made that comment. And then I also said I'd seen the exhibition quickly, and I just wished that they would have a book on the art Yes. And he said, yes, we, I want that too. But he said, there's a problem. Said the person who writes it has to know about art, but they also have to know about the, my father's writings to yeah. understand mm-hmm. their, their relationship to the Absolutely. art. And then he stopped with, for a minute. Now, he knew about but Wayne. He'd seen samples of Wayne's bibliography, uh-huh. and he had seen all my reviews in Beyond Re of the History of Middle Earth because he'd said to me that he'd read them. And he stopped wow. for a minute and he said to me, would you and Wayne be interested in writing such a book? Wow. <laughs> I'm getting chills on behalf of you. <laughs> in, in, you know, putting myself in that place, thinking what that must have been like. Oh, goodness. I sort of gulped. Yeah. yeah. And it was far on into the banquet and tried not to slip under the table in shock. <laughs> right. <laughs> we were uh, engaged by that oh, okay. time. Okay. Okay. He, and he knew about that. Yeah. So we thought, well, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. We, we How quickly can I say that's, yes? That's the question you say yes to, absolutely. Can, can we get that into, into contract t- tonight? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we did have, of course, to what we had to do was to submit – Yes. A sort of synopsis or how we would go yeah. about it for his Opposing. approval. Oh, of course. And it took a few months mm-hmm. because then then they opened up and the stuff that was closed, all the artwork, which was not available for any, was open to right. us to look oh. at. Oh, how lovely that must have been. Have you seen either of the exhibitions? Uh, I've seen the Bodleian exhibition. I was there when I attended Oxenmoot in October. Um, well, I reckon that probably about sixty, no, probably about sixty or seventy percent of the items there we'd actually held in our hands. Oh, wow! <laughs> I believe it because many of That's those wonderful. I'd seen in the various art books. I have all three of those, and mm-hmm. many of those I'd come to know very well from looking them in your from in your books. Work. Sure, yeah. yeah. But also, the other thing was when we were doing the companion and guide, Tolkien reused a lot of sheets of paper. Uh-huh. So we were going through everything at Marquette and all the available papers mm. at the Bodley yeah. that were not restricted, looking to see if he'd reused letters mm. or invitations or anything else. And it's surprising what one gathered by, by Oh, doing I imagine that. it would be, yes. <laughs> so we had, you know, it took us a, a few years to do Artist and Illustrator. We were yeah. married in December of 1994, mm-hmm. and the book came out in 95. Autumn 95. Autumn 95, when Prince Christina moved to America, and has done pretty well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It actually uh, you know, went from hardback into paperback, and then back into hardback, mm-hmm. and then they had to reprint. They can still, still in print now. But it's not been superseded by our other two art no. books, Art of the Hobbit, Art of the Lord of the Rings, 
although we were limited as to how many pictures we could have in Artist and Illustrator, because we had a, uh, you know, the publisher will will figure how many pages at this size and this kind of book mm, okay. uh, can right. we do, mm-hmm. and how much is that going cost, to cost exactly. versus how much we can legitimately charge for the book, mm-hmm. right. and and then people will buy it. And there was only half in color. Yeah, yes. right. But they did give us the thing that the color could be on any side because any often if they have color, oh yeah, you they, they print only color only on one side of a sheet, right? And then you mm-hmm. have to think, well, what is going to be on this side? What? Yeah, it reduces the cost. They only have to do it on one. The the original Adventures of Tom Bombadil book from sixty two is like that. Mm, okay, yeah, because Artist and Illustrator was successful. Then the question was, well, what next? Right. Mm-hmm. And Rainer Unwin gave us a very good piece of advice. He says, he said to us that remember, because by this time he had stepped down from, he was no longer the head of the firm. Right. Mm-hmm. It was HarperCollins. He said, remember that a publisher needs you as much as you need the publisher. Mm. So put forward what you would like to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we came up with, I don't know, a, a Eight or ten, I think, different ideas. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the most immediate thing uh, that came up was Riverandum. Very good. Okay, because it had not; it was a story that had not been published. Right, and there was some talk over the years of doing it, but it was felt that it really wasn't long enough to stand by itself. Tolkien had done a few pictures for it, but mm-hmm. but right. you know, it wasn't very. And publishers like to have you know something that's substantial sure. or that seems sure, substantial. Yeah. I think publishers had not yet at that time got to the point they are now where they will put very little text on the page mm-hmm. and bulk out the book just in the number of pages, which seems a, a, a sad waste of trees. It, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> but they decided that, well, if if we would write an introduction to River Random, you know, that would flesh it out mm-hmm. enough. And we said, well, you, you know, this was done in the 20s and it has – a certain amount of vocabulary that really needs notes. Uh-huh. Now, publishers for a general audience generally do not like notes. No. So we said, well, let's design this, and we're not, not having footnote numbers or anything like this, but just put the notes in the back, and people can ignore them if they want. Right. Uh, and they can ignore the introduction if they want, which many people do anyway. <laughs> and you know, this is, this is what, what I call self-scholarship. Mm-hmm. You get the information in anyway. And, you know, they, they did that. Was that 98? Sounds about right. Yes. Yes, right. I think it was January 98. It was practically yeah. beginning, beginning of the year. Yeah. We did actually have two other suggestions. One of them, we said, looking ahead, of course, the annotated Hobbit had come out. There is the possibility of an annotated Lord of the Rings. Mm, yeah. And the 50th anniversary is getting close. But that's sort of for the future. But we really wanted and still want to do letters. Mm. An expanded edition of letters. That would be wonderful. There's a lot more letters out there. There are, right. But David Braun, who's the person at HarperCollins and still is, he said, no, we, the estate don't want that. But huh. he showed us HarperCollins had just published Hooper's Companion and Guide to uh, mm. C.S. Lewis. Ah, and he yeah, said... Okay. If you did a copy of something like this, it would allow you to bring much of the information in, perhaps more letters, and that would be good. So our first contract was Roverandum and would be followed by 
and we knew that already that we would be doing this companion, companion and guide, mm-hmm. which it, it, we could work on both at the same time. Right. We did actually. So Wayne, Christina, you, you both have been working in the field of Tolkien studies for nearly 30 years now, probably a little bit longer based on your answer just now. How do you believe the field has changed in that time? Oh. Well, it used to be so much easier keeping up with other people because if you got one book a year, you were lucky. Mm -hmm. Maybe only one every two years. Now trying to keep up with the amount of stuff coming in. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it was much easier for us because we we had a chance to absorb things like the history of Middle Earth Mm. and the few books that came out like Shippy. But for people now, I don't know how they do it and how they dig in. It's like drinking from a fire hose. It's There's so much there, information. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's not coming out one one at a time. Yeah. You're right. You're not reading a, one volume in the history of Middle mm-hmm. Earth and then waiting, waiting a, year a year for the, for the next, next one. one. Yeah. Now, when I, I mentioned that you know when I started to read Tolkien, there was very little beyond yeah. Carter, uh, which is hardly the best book on Tolkien. But because there was there was so little Tolkien that had been published, right. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I wrote my bibliography, when I started to write it, I had a uh, an erroneous idea about how much Tolkien had actually written. Mm. Now, he did not write a great deal that was published in his lifetime, mm-hmm. including his, his scholarly writings, but there was more than I knew, mm-hmm. and uh, so much that came out in periodical literature. Nor was I aware, uh, doing a descriptive bibliography, of how much, how many variations there were in different editions or printings of his various books. I had to deal with that. But in terms of anything in formal Tolkien studies, it was a much easier time because there was so much less to deal with. Mm. I remember Tolkien studies prior to the appearance of the Silmarillion and Carpenter's biography. Those were the real turning points in in 1977. Mm -hmm. And then when Christopher Tolkien got going with Unfinished Tales and with the history of Middle Earth, these are all things that now you need to take into account. Right. Oh, yeah. I think we've written somewhere that, that you ignore them at your peril Absolutely. if you're a Tolkien scholar. But it is a great deal to to take in. And the literature of, of Tolkien now, literature about Tolkien, is vast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> That's that putting it's, it mildly, yeah. It's very hard, mm-hmm. very hard for a new scholar coming along to know just what are the more important works. Mm-hmm, right. They're not necessarily the more, most recent works. And... You know, books like our companion and guide. We, mm-hmm. you know, we hope it will be sort of a guide to what people should be looking at. But it's a, it's a, it's also a more, much more formal business now. Yeah. This, Tolkien has become much more of a subject for university study. Mm-hmm. He's been accepted as a subject for course offerings. He is a uh, now a more legitimate subject for doctoral dissertations. Mm-hmm. You know, John Ratliff, when he went to uh, get his doctorate at Marquette, had to do it on Lord Dunsany. He wanted to do it on Tolkien and fantasy and was not allowed to mm. at that time. But you know, even though Marquette University has a, a major right. collection, yeah. and right. it was formed there uh, by William Reedy, at the, at the librarian, because it was part of the materials that were that you really need at a university that has vast degrees so that people have material to work right. on. But it, and it's also, also, of course, so much more has become available in terms of primary materials from Marquette, mm-hmm. from the Bodleian. Mm-hmm. 
and things things that have come out that uh, one now has to to read and absorb, which is is not an easy thing to do. What do you think has driven maybe that growth? You mentioned earlier that the turning point was the Carpenter biography and the release of the Silmarillion in 1977. As that being a turning point, was that really kind of the start of this acceleration, or or is it something else? And if so, what would you what would you point to as maybe a, a cause of that? I don't think there was so much coming out straight after that. I think it's probably in the mid-90s. I think up until the mid-90s, you could still keep going. Now, I think so many people want to to publish something. Mm -hmm. There's so many, the things that gets me, so many collections of essays. People don't write whole books. They write essays, and (laughs) it's much easier. I mean, you see them advertising. I'm doing a book. I'm asking for submissions for a book on this subject. And I find that it's there tends to be a lot of repetition. Mm, mm-hmm. Sometimes editors or even reviewers don't notice that sometimes people don't really know as much as they think they do. Mm, mm. I also find myself that unless they're very good, reading a book of essays is sometimes like being hit on the head one time <laughs> after another as everybody's trying to, to make, make a, a point. point. You are right. Making the point. <laughs> You're right. Mm-hmm. It's very, uh, okay, you've made your point, move on. And then somebody else has to make their point and pretty soon your brain hurts. Yeah. <laughs> and too frequently when you do stumble upon a really great point, the essay's over all too quickly and then you're on to something that's else true that's, too. that's not as well. Yeah. Right. It does sometimes feel too short. That's right. That is true. It's not just Tolkien studies though. I mean, it's, no. it's the nature of this kind it's of- Academia in general right, and, sure. and, and literary, yes. literary that, studies. That the scholar has to have some sort of point. And I think the the most amusing ones are those that try to compare Tolkien with some author or poet who is you know, totally disconnected. <laughs> yeah. You know, Tolkien and, and T.S. Eliot were, you know, <laughs> you know, well, well, how do you, how do you do this? And it ends up being uh, something about Tolkien, something about the other person and, oh, but they don't necessarily right. come right. together. Yeah. There's actually been essays I've read on, in Tolkien studies where you get you get to the end and the author admits that well there really isn't anything here. <laughs> uh, I think I wrote a few papers in college like that. <laughs> but it's good to see the attention mm-hmm. that that's being paid right. to yeah. Tolkien, and of course, as I said, I think Carpenter and Silmarillion started it, but not immediately, as Christina right. says. The history of Middle Earth. I think began to give people the idea that this is something that is really substantive. Yeah. And then uh, more recently, it's been a matter of things being publisher-driven, that uh, there is a market. Yes. I was going to say where it really took off, I think, was the first Jackson efforts. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Because almost everything that had been published before was republished, either as was or with just a minor emendation, supposedly updating. There was a whole pile of them coming out. Everybody, And it was a matter, I think, of there's money Mm -hmm. in this. Yes. That that market was there. The publisher knew the market was there. Yeah. There's a market. Perhaps that's that's a politer way of putting (laughs) it. And it also, about the same time, you began to get the niche things. Far more people who were doing it just from the religious mm. aspects mm. Yeah, or yeah. from other aspects of gradually picking up feminism and other things. Mm-hmm. Ecology, yeah. yes. And it was at that point, up until then, we had tried to have a complete 
books on Tolkien complete as well as books by Mm. Tolkien. And it was about 2002, 2003 that we looked at each other with the shelves filling up and said, do we really want to have this particular Mm. book? Yes, especially after uh, print on demand and self-publishing mm, oh, came yeah. in. Uh, so the that bar, right? Can, yeah, yeah, the bar of entry is much lower. Right. And, and you know, we know all about, all about that because there's absolutely no bar to entering podcasting. <laughs> Standards are very low, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> and, and and also with blogging and things like that. And, That's true. And, you know, anybody can start a blog. You know, there are some good blogs out there. There's some very good blogs out there. There are good Yours included, which we'll get to, yes. but yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's true. That bar of entry now is... Is really yeah much much lower close to the floor now. It seems like anybody yeah. can step over it and get their thoughts. Try on, to get out something there. out there, and that's and yeah. I guess I suppose that's there's good and bad in that. Yeah, you just have to have a little more discernment as you look yeah. through all the the various materials. Yeah, but you're right because now that that piles in so much stuff for the reader and the scholar and the fan to look at and to try to determine what's worth my time. Mm-hmm. And that's where something like your companion guide really come into play because you reference so many other works mm-hmm. uh, that it really helps. I think you mentioned this, Wayne, that you're hoping that that serves as a guide, a roadmap for folks as they look to pull together mm-hmm. other other books, other works uh, to study. So Yeah. And the reader's companion as well, just like the the annotated Hobbit, you know, having, as you're reading the book, having these these cross-references to other works, other scholarship, other works by Tolkien, unfinished works by Tolkien, is a, is a really nice roadmap for readers. Uh, there is another thing that's come in now, which is a little difficult, that a lot of people want to own Tolkien. Mm. Pressing yeah. that, oh, he wrote, his, this inspired the Lord of the Rings. Right. This inspired that. I think the funniest thing we ever read was actually was by a newspaper report which said some mountains in Scotland must have influenced them because they're just like the Jackson films. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah, well. that's uh, <laughs> quite silly indeed. <laughs> but you know, it's a sort of, and strangely enough, even places which have good connections, mm-hmm. Birmingham, Stonyhurst, Right. Want mm-hmm. more than they've got yeah. sometimes. Not all. Well, like we've said before, there's a market there. Right. And uh, even we've discovered that when we first started the show, and I don't want to get too far sidetracked, but we didn't expect more than about 50 or 100 people who knew us from various Facebook groups to listen. You right. know, we're just a couple of guys. We don't pretend to be scholars. Uh, you know, maybe maybe knowledgeable amateurs might be as far as we would take Avid ourselves. Avid readers and, of, of yeah, the literature yeah. and the literature about the literature. Exactly. And so, you know, when we when we put that out there, we didn't expect much. And now we're, I think we're going to close in by the time this episode releases, we'll have had a million downloads total in less than three seasons. And mm-hmm. it's it's stunning to me that there is such a market out there. Mm-hmm. And it's that market that I think drives the effort of so many publishers to put just more and more material out there. Mm-hmm. You know, these books, and I'm, you know, I, I don't want to name names, but there are authors who are, <laughs> shall we say, not looked upon kindly by those of us in the Tolkien mm-hmm. Society, uh, who continually churn out stuff right, that you find yes. at Costco. And it's just, it's mind-numbingly frustrating yeah. to see people buy this stuff. And you're like, but, well, do you have, do you have Carpenter's biography? Who's that? I've got this right. book by... <laughs> yes. Yeah. We know who you're talking about. I know about. you don't, yes. and so do our listeners, but we, I don't want my lawyers yeah. to get any business, so we're going to not say anything else. No. Well, it's it's interesting, though, that, 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 that you know the publishers will continue to do these things, and ha- happily for us, yeah. but you know, certainly 
you cannot find all of these things in your local Barnes no. and Noble. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to wonder, you know, how well do these books actually mm-hmm. do? Uh, you know, there's sort of a glut on the market. You know, even uh, Tolkien's American publishers don't take everything right. by Tolkien no. that's being published. We've now. we've had to order a few uh, but, UK editions, yeah, mm-hmm. right. But then that's that's another big change in what drives things is the fact that you have the internet and you have Amazon yeah. and you can you can mm-hmm. get books from overseas. Uh, whereas Christine and I, when we first met, we were buying each other books. I would buy her yeah. American mm-hmm. books. She would buy me British books because that's, that's the, only that way was to get the easiest them. Sure. way to get them. Yeah. This was pre-internet. But uh, the internet and of course your podcasts like yours are part again of the changed uh, environment. Mm-hmm. It used to be that if you if you liked Tolkien, you would you would join the Tolkien Society, you join the Mythic yeah. Society, you would get the publications, uh, you might go to one of the conferences. Yeah. And there, thereby, you met people and were able to have conversations mm-hmm. like we're having now. But with the internet, uh, you know, Facebook groups, mm-hmm. forums, podcasts—you know, this is this is all part of the general sort of fan conversation mm-hmm. that's going yeah. on, and it enables you to do things that you do them in a different way yeah. than we used to. No, that's quite true. Well, I know we could explore that question alone for the next hour, but we do want to get to some of your work. So we're going to start, start, we're halfway through the show, but we want to start by talking about one of your reference works that we've mentioned a number of times on the show here in our third season, and that's The Lord of the Rings, A Reader's Companion. Now, folks, uh, for those who don't know, it was originally published in 2005, revised as recently as 2014. I suspect many of our listeners know a lot about it now because we've mentioned it probably just about every episode that we're in the books. It's been a wonderful resource for us, and we love to point people to it. But for those who don't know, it's a set of annotations to The Lord of the Rings, page by page. It's a little bit like Douglas Anderson's Annotated Hobbit, but like you say in the preface, it wasn't practical pr- to produce an edition like that with annotations in the margins of the text. You'd you'd need a pickup truck to carry it around. Uh, you, you pulled from a lot of different sources, Tolkien's other works, the history of Middle-earth, his letters, published and unpublished, archives, Tolkien scholarship. So with all that as background, I want to ask you this. What was your ultimate goal with The Reader's Companion? And with that in mind, how did you decide what to include and what to exclude? Well, as Christina said earlier, we had originally proposed an annotated edition right? Mm-hmm. and realized that that was not practical. And also that anybody who would be interested in the annotations already owned at least one edition. <laughs> true. Quite true. Maybe more. Mm-hmm. So the... Um, we conceived of this as something that could be used with any edition, mm-hmm. although keyed both to the old standard three-volume edition and to the new 50th anniversary edition, mm-hmm. because we were editing that at the same time. Oh, okay. I was wondering about that. Preparing that. And of course, we had to do that first. Yeah. Otherwise, right, your pagination, you, yeah. you wouldn't have been able to <laughs> reference right. all those. We needed the pagination. But also, because the 50th anniversary was coming up, we had to have it uh, yeah, by yeah. 2004. Mm-hmm. So that got priority. And then we were able to attack the uh, Reader's Companion after that, although we were doing some work on that at the same time, because the editing of The Lord of the Rings meant that Christina especially had all sorts of copies of The Lord of the Rings out on the table, and we had gathered together information Mm. about Mm errors and corrections and changes that were made between the editions. Textual variants. Textual variations. We also had, uh, we knew about questions that people had had over the years that we gathered mm-hmm. together. But basically, we we both went through the text and, you know, looked for things that needed 
glossing that had uh, mm -hmm. that could relate to you know drafts that had been published in the history of Middle Earth mm -hmm. that we we knew had some sort of correlation with uh, something in in real life, and little by little it it builds up. And yeah. we scanned all the timescales at Marquette. Oh, well, wow. yes, the, the, the synoptic timetables, the synoptic yeah. chronologies that Tolkien did, th that was fascinating pieces of, of work that he did. And, you know, that helped a lot. And the little bits like the Hobbit's, Hobbit scales and the, so the Hobbit, end, Hobbit end strides, yes, and, so and the end yes. strides and the rest of it. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. We also had notes that Tol uh, supplied from the Tolkien correspondence, notes that he had written to the Dutch publisher when he disagreed, right. when he disagreed yes. with things, and one of the unfinished index that Tolkien had, which we had access to. We had also, of course, gone through Tolkien's correspondence, uh, both mm -hmm. published letters and anything else that we had, and those brought up some things. But as you can see, the fact that this has appeared in several editions now, there's no end to it. There's always right. something more that can be said about the Lord of the Rings, some point that comes up. And, and people have disagreed with us on some points, and we've had to address those. Oddly enough, the edition that's published in the United States is still the first edition. Huh. They have never brought in the revised text. Interesting. We revised the text first when HarperCollins wanted to do a trade paperback. We were able to do some some changes there, and then a revised hardback came in, which was uh, which was a lot of fun to do because <laughs> yeah. they had had it printed by a printer who was no longer in business, and the printer had had the, the files for that. Oh, so um, we needed to uh, sort of recreate things. Yeah, re-engineer. Mm -hmm. Well, and the fact that we were making some changes on pages. But we didn't want to make too many changes because we didn't want to have to redo the index, uh, right, right, the internal cross-references. Mm -hmm. I actually had to reconstruct, uh, I think it was 100 pages oh. for the new edition. Oh, my goodness. Fortunately, I'm also a topographer and book designer, so I can do that. But you know, it was a, it was a little bit more labor-intensive than, than mm -hmm. just adding a few things. Because by right. then, we had put Addenda and Core Agenda online, uh -huh. and we still do. Right which is, of course, one of the great things about the web environment we live in now, that we yeah. can do things like that. Right. Well, I'd like to spend some time talking about one of the the other writings by Tolkien that you included in The Reader's Companion, and that's the the nomenclature of The Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite resources, and, and I want to thank you for putting it out there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and our listeners have heard us refer to it a number of times. It's the the guide that Tolkien himself prepared to help translators attempting to translate his work. It gives definitions and etymologies for some of the names of people and places in the book. We've referenced it a number of times because we are very big word nerds here at the Prancing Pony podcast. That we are. Now, in the in the preface, you say that Tolkien had actually started working on a glossary index for The Lord of the Rings, which he never finished. And then this uh, this nomenclature document is the closest thing we've got to that. I'd like to get your thoughts on why an etymological glossary of this kind is so important for Tolkien's work more so than for many other authors that are out there. Hmm. We're looking at each other. <laughs> I get, I'm just trying to get my mind around it because there was some problem with all this. Yes, that's why I'm leaving it to you because you've got it in mind. Well, you go on talking about it. All right. <laughs> words in Tolkien, of course, are, are, yeah, words were very important to Tolkien. Of course. And 
one of the answers I was given to the question of why, you know, what makes Tolkien's Lord of the Rings so great? And I say it's because he was a master of the English language, mm-hmm. because he knew what words meant. Right. And not just in English, but in any of the invented languages. Mm-hmm. And obviously in other languages as well, because he could make so many comments to the uh, people who wanted to translate his works and say, well, this is this is right. This is not right. Mm-hmm. He was not happy with the first, first translation of The Hobbit, for instance. Right. Uh, no Dutch translation, let alone the Swedish Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And I think those were the those were the ones that prompted the him developing the the nomenclature, right? Yes, yes, especially that. But it's extremely interesting work. It first appeared in Tolkien Compass that Jared Lobdell had edited. But as we got to um, the Reader's Companion, the Tolkien Estate felt that we're going to sort of bring it back into print. This, uh, this was, I think, before the second edition of the Tolkien Compass came out, that this this was the place to do it. Mm-hmm. Have you found it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, we know that he wrote to Cotton Minchin, and I'm quoting, an index of names was to be produced, which by etymological interpretation would also provide quite a large elvish vocabulary. This, of course, is the first requirement. I worked on it for months, an index for the first few vo- two volumes. Now, that has actually been, well, we asked Christopher for the unfinished index, and we thought what he sent us was that. Mm. Now, I think my explanation on page 726 of the mm. updated companion and, companion and Guide, I have to read that out. When we came to write The Lord of the Rings, A Reader's Companion, we asked to see a copy of the Index of Names and Strange Words, but were sent instead the rough index of place names, which are also referred to in the correspondence. Mm -hmm. And although we recognised that the latter was not etymological and dealt with all three volumes rather than only the first two, nevertheless we confused one index with the other, and then compounded the confusion by calling the index of place names the unfinished index, as if it were the one Tolkien referred to in his letter to Cotton mm. Minchin. Not until the publication of words, phrases, mm. and passages in various tongues in the Lord of the Rings in Parmenel de Lambert and 17 did we understand our error and the circumstances that led to it. Even so, oh. the document we were sent served our purpose best as Christopher Tolkien had already provided etymological information from the Index of Names in the History of Middle-earth. Mm. Oops. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a master of understatement, Wayne. That was... so, so I'm afraid, you know, when we talk about the unfinished index, it's not really the unfinished index. Right. It is okay. an index. But, but that's, the, that's, you know, it was we sort of went, oh, dear. <laughs> that, is, that is great. Oops. You'll find that. I was reading it out from page 726. Seven, seven, it's the, 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 of, the sec, of the first this first volume, first volume of, of the, the companion, companion guide, guide. yeah, and right. that's the first volume of the new three-volume version, correct? Yes, okay. that's right. Yeah, this is something that we feel, you know, that you know, obliged to do, which is if we goof, yeah, uh, we'll own up to it. Um, <laughs> we've we've had a number of people write to us, you know, saying, "Oh, you goofed on this page." And we might look at it and say, "Well, no, we didn't." Right, right. <laughs> but but sometimes, oh, yeah, we did. Yeah. And of course, there is the occasional typo, but given a work of that length, oh, yeah. I think that's of course, par for yeah, course. that is under par, in fact. I'm oh, quite, right. yeah. 
And Tolkien fans are very good about pointing out those little goofs when, when we it, make them. They are. We've learned that the hard <laughs> way, haven't we, Sean? We've we've made a number of goofs. And, well, um, yeah. And, <laughs> and our listeners are quick to point them out. And they we are. usually did actually goof. There, aren't, there yeah. aren't many times when we can say, no, we didn't make a mistake. <laughs> That's true. May I tell you one goof you certainly you made? Absolutely. Yeah, please. Okay. That's it. At the right at the beginning, you were talking about our nine mythopoeic Oh, ones. no. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I've had five. Christina's had four jointly with me, oh, but it's not nine no. total. Oh, my goodness. Oh, goodness. Okay, okay. Between you. We've got five lions, so <laughs> that's that's still still quite a few. There you go. Oh, my. Well, this um, may be a record oh for the quickest correction published, yes. right, Sean? Yes, actually being corrected in the same episode. Usually yes. when we make an error, we find out about it after it releases, not during the recording. <laughs> this is brilliant. Right. I love it. Well, yes. There you go. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. But, we love but, that. But any any errors in the companion and guide, though, it really, really are on us because it's not just that we wrote it, but mm. I also typeset the whole thing. So, Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> you can't even blame the, the typographer for a I can't. I can't. Error. No, no. Something, <laughs> there's a typo. It's, 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 it's on it's you. It's probably me. Yeah. Well, yeah. like you said, with a work of that size, with those three volumes, mm-hmm. you're, there's going to be uh, a few uh, errors, yeah, I'm sure. Of course. And, and as you said earlier, Wayne, just the, the, the fact that now you can post addenda and core agenda on the web, as I know you do on your site, yeah. um, what a great thing that is. It's it's easy for us as scholars ourselves or readers to, to go. <laughs> Please and, tell me you put air quotes around scholars. <laughs> <and> scholars, <laughs> us collectively as scholars. Those, oh, okay, those, okay. The ones who listen to us who happen to be scholars. Oh, okay. Yeah, or as readers uh, to, to go out there and, and find out, hey, has, has there been an update to this since it was published? Yeah, so. yeah. I'm afraid we're very much behind because we we have been busy and, oh, um, you know, Maker of Middle Earth added so mm-hmm. much new stuff mm-hmm. that we are still only partially absorbed it. You yeah. think of all those little letters, quote, you know, one line quotes from letters, which add mm-hmm. to the chronology or add a bit of information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a very long, it's a long phase. Right. <laughs> I right. don't doubt that at all. Well, I guess that means probably a good time to move on to the Companion and Guide, right, Yeah, Sean? I, was, I was just going to say, I was going to say, let's go ahead and spend a little more time uh, talking about the J.R.R. Tolkien Companion and Guide. Another wonderful reference. And uh-huh. uh, as we've been discussing, a considerable undertaking for you, I know. <laughs> Vast, uh, yes. At the risk of repeating myself, thank you for, uh, for <laughs> doing it for us. And for listeners who aren't familiar with it, the Companion and Guide consists of two main parts. There's a chronology of Tolkien's life and works. And it's what's now a two-volume alphabetical reader's guide. And to paraphrase your own words to explain what this is, it's not an alphabetical encyclopedia of Middle Earth along the lines of what you might get with something like Foster's Complete Guide to Middle Earth or Tyler's Complete Tolkien Companion. But it's, uh, and now I'm going to quote you, it's a what's what, a where's where, and a who's who of Tolkien. And if I may add maybe more on the man himself. Originally published in two volumes in 2006, it was just revised and expanded in 2017 to a three-volume edition, with the Reader's Guide now expanded to two books. What prompted the new edition in 2017? uh, And and this could be a a very long answer, but (laughs) uh, in in a nutshell, (laughs) what's new in the new edition? Well, to back up, I mean, Christina was talking earlier about HarperCollins asking us to do this thing in the first place. Right because Walter Hooper had done the C.S. Lewis Companion and Guide. Mm-hmm. And originally we were 
we were looking at a single volume because Hooper's book is a single volume. But Hooper had included a um, sort of truncated biography of Lewis and were legitimately so because he and um, Roger Lanson and Green Green Ah, had had already done a, a formal biography. We thought, well, if we did a biography of Tolkien like that, it would really just be sort of potting Carpenter. Mm. So we decided, well, let's let's do a chronology, and then we could just bring in the relevant facts and not have to worry about you know interpreting things right. too much. And we started gathering the facts, and it grew and it grew. And we spent a lot of time in libraries and archives and looked at every every scrap of manuscript that we could get our hands on, yeah. every letter that we could find. And uh, eventually we had so much chronology material that we said something to HarperCollins and they said, well, let's make that two volumes then, mm-hmm. which was very good of them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and then that came out in, in a nice package. Yeah. And we thought, well, that will be that because um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it sold. But I think our, our books tend to, to sell steadily. Right. Mm-hmm. if not spectacularly, which is good. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of books we like to write. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. Because they're the ones that uh, are the most valuable. But uh, we were over in uh, in London, was it? Spring three? 2016. Spring of 2016, and we visited uh, HarperCollins, and much to our surprise, they said, well, we've sold out of the Companion and Guide. Wow. Thought, well, okay, <laughs> that's that then. Uh, well, we'd like a new edition. <laughs> not not a new printing, an entirely new edition. Okay, right, right, right. They thought, well, you know, they didn't want to just up, uh, correct a printing because you know we'd had a lot of addendum. Oh, addendum, sure, uh, right, uh, sure. online by that time, and we said, well, they said, well, how much more do you think you would do? And I think we must have estimated something like at least a hundred pages. Well, we knew also that the first two volumes, there were the absolute extent we couldn't have added a page more. They were at the that is true. Yeah. We had an absolute page count on right. this, okay. and and one was certainly at the limit. So yeah, it had to go to three volumes. And then the question was, well, how do you make them right. more or less you know, equal if, you know, for the sake of things? Right. Are they going to be published separately? Are they going to be published only in a box set? Right. All of these things are questions you, you have, to, have to know. But of course, uh, as we were working on that, more and more information came, came out. We thought of various articles that we hadn't put in the first edition that really we thought really needed to go in. Things that you maybe had to cut because of that hard page limit, right? Yes. But we had cut, we had cut, uh, didn't cut a great deal okay. when we did the first one. We did, had a lot of tricks and when we cut out a lot of cross-references and mm-hmm. so forth. Okay. We didn't leave out too much. But, you know, so much came out since then, starting yeah. with the children of mm-hmm. Hurin. Oh, yes, that's true. And that was a problem to us because actually in the Lays of Beleriand, Christopher says the title of the poem was The Children of Hurin, and we decided to use that in the first edition instead of The Lay of Mm, the Children mm -hmm. of Hurin. And then just after it came out, Christopher (laughs) publishes The Children of Hurin, which is not the same thing as as The the Lay. It's the published book of that. So, But we had things like, uh, you know, we had not included an article on Richard Wagner. Uh, We had not included one on Kenneth Graham, I think, Mm, right? mm -hmm. You might have added Kenneth Graham, but certainly I added Lewis Carroll, Lewis Carroll. and oh, yeah. um, Peter Jane Pan, Barry. Uh, James Barry. James Barry, Francis Thompson. I did a couple of things on the um, Collingwood. Uh, mm-hmm. Tolkien's method of writing and Tolkien in his own works. 
Mm. And we had to add to the article on adaptations because of, right. oh, of course, yeah. the films and you know, all sorts of things that suddenly, you know, come up. Yeah. And we had the room to do it because, right. you know, we could have, have three volumes. But of course, then when you've done this, this one, we had to do a new index because it's all <laughs> yes, totally changed. True. Right. Of course. And also this time we were unable to do it the first time around because Christina had had some medical issues and, and the thing had to go to press. But this time we actually were able to add running heads oh. so that you can find your hmm. way around in it. Yeah. Yeah. It was terrible even for ourselves trying to find our, our way around. <laughs> but it is something that we can do, of course, since you know, doing the typesetting. Yeah. But but we, we did add a substantial amount. There is a list on our website of the editions. Oh, okay. So that it is... It was not just a little bit added to it. And, oh, no, uh, no. Well, now we divide it into three volumes. There's a substantial amount, not more. So that uh, there, there really is, yeah. It's well over a million words now. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I had had the two-volume edition, of course, and yeah. I ordered the three-volume edition. <laughs> it was quite, quite this a bit. This is quite beefier, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I had not consciously noted the the running heads, but when you mentioned it, I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely right, because I did find myself – it was much easier to navigate mm-hmm. than the second version. So, yeah. And I was glad to see it come out yeah. because it, it took me forever to track down a nice copy of the two-volume edition. And uh, when mm-hmm. I got it, it was unfortunately damaged. Uh, and so I was, oh, I was no. really happy to have a nice new edition when the three-volume came yeah. out that's, uh, that's in pristine condition. Absolutely. And HarperCollins uh, really has done a good job of printing with this. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's a handsome book and it's, it's very readable. Mm-hmm. Uh, surprisingly, although it, you know, it took a, a few years for the first edition to sell out, this one, they had to go back to press. Oh, wow. Very quickly. That's excellent news. Uh, for a second printing. Good. Yeah. It was very, a good problem very to good have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think this is the internet culture yeah. because you think of all those people on the Talking Society's Facebook page. Right. And people put it up. It does. It does mm-hmm. spread the news. Yeah. It does. It's good publicity. Yeah, we. I know we saw it a number of times. People were very excited about the mm-hmm. three volume edition. Uh, I know we mentioned it on the show, I believe, and of course we've had links to it on our uh, on our library page as well. So, in the preface of the companion and guide, you speaking of the chronology, you observe that the little details of Tolkien's life, and I love this quote, form a picture of an extraordinarily busy man. Tolkien, the scholar. Tolkien, the teacher and administrator. Tolkien, the husband and father, Tolkien, the creator of Middle-earth. Now, you say that one of your goals in the book was to show that Tolkien neither wasted his time nor shirked his responsibilities. Now, that's especially to those who are pretty familiar with that stereotypical picture of Tolkien as a man who niggled endlessly over details and therefore left an incredible amount of work unfinished at the time of his death. Now, when you read the chronology, you realize just how busy his position at Oxford kept him, along with a, a reasonably active social life, really. In a way, it seems we should consider ourselves fortunate that he finished and published the few things that he did. I wondered if you could, it's kind of an open-ended thing, but I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that, giving our listeners a feel for how Tolkien's writing, how his sub-creation fit into the workings of his day-to-day life as a professor and as a husband and father. Well, for one thing, a great deal of his writing took place in the vacations, especially the Mm -hmm. long back. Mm -hmm. Mm. And very often late at night, as he says, he seems not to have needed a lot of sleep. <laughs> and he didn't, he didn't have to be distracted by the internet or Facebook. Right. Or That's true. So television. Yeah. But I think people didn't realize 
when you look at it at one point, for instance, he was supervising nine postgraduate mm. students, which meant usually seeing them each for an hour or so once wow. a week. Right. On top of committee meetings, uh, he was always on the English faculty board. Mm, yeah. As a professor, he was always on the faculty board. Other readers or lecturers were only on for a short time, but he was always on the board mm-hmm, yeah. as a full professor. Right. We had the question early on in, in writing the companion and guide, do, do you really need to include all of those meetings and all of those things re- regarding Oxford? And our reply was this this was his mm-hmm. life. Yeah. This was what he did day to day. And you need to know that, you know, well, to uh, certainly defend Tolkien against the charges that he uh, was, uh, yeah, was just, shirked uh, his job, and yeah, it was just uh, out in Middle Earth and writing his fantasy fiction, and that's why he didn't get things done. He had a lot of administrative mm-hmm. duties, and this was yes, the way it was at Oxford, uh, without the help that professors will often have now, with in terms of mm, uh, yeah. administrative assistants or secretaries in the department or so right. forth. Tolkien didn't have mm-hmm. that. He gave more lectures than he was required to do. Mm-hmm. He was on all of these committees. This is what paid the bills. Mm-hmm. True. It was also his primary life. We tend to think of him and things like the uh, edition of the published letters tend to concentrate on his fiction writing. Sure. Uh, but he was, you know, he did not shirk his mm-hmm. duties by any means. No. I think somewhere we say it was not that he sort of failed to do, he just tried to do too much. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm, yeah. There's only 24 hours in a day and you have to sleep at some point, even if you don't need as much as everyone else. He was also a dedicated teacher. Um, yeah, I mean, this yeah. is what he enjoyed doing. And if you look at some of the other people, some people who were his colleagues, people like George Gordon, some of the younger faculty, they too, they didn't necessarily publish a lot uh, in their field, but they, they taught. And in academia, even now, in any country, the argument goes on, you know, how much should you be concentrating on your research? Mm-hmm. In a big university, well, there are faculty who are basically there for the research, and they may teach a class or two. Places like Williams, teaching is the main thing. Right. Although you're you're expected to do your other work as well. Right. I'm a librarian, so I don't I don't really have those things. Although I <laughs> I, I teach, but all of this that we're talking about is is on my own time. Right. Well, and that's the the wonderful thing about just opening the chronology and just flipping through the pages. I really enjoy doing it because you do see how much time he spent teaching and on his administrative duties. And it's it's fascinating to see how much, as you said, how much time he spent on that as opposed to, you know, the fiction writing that we remember him for. And that's ultimately the reason we're here today. But he, he, did, uh, he did have this, uh, this whole other day job, really. Well, and he and and we had to have that because, as Christina was saying, you know, when did he do his writing? He did it when he was not teaching, mm-hmm. when he didn't have, right. by and large, the academic duties to perform. You have to have the one to understand the other. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. Yeah. To get a, a full orbed vision of of who he was, you definitely need to have that material and know just how much of his life, uh, you know, he had to spend doing those things and, and how that shaped who he was. And what he wrote, you know. I'm, I'm jealous thinking about those students yeah. that, that got to sit under his yeah. tutelage. What a privilege, because he did pour mm-hmm. himself into his teaching. He did care about teaching those kids. There are a lot of acknowledgments from people, and quite a lot. There's the occasional thing where people say of a student's work, well, you can see Tolkien's, mm. Tolkien's uh, influence, influence mm. in this. I bet, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing is, but then even when it came to the uh, his publishing, Rainer, well, Jane Neve suggested an edition of some of the poems of, just for the poem of Tom Bombadil. Mm-hmm. Right. But Rainer wanted a few more, and Tolkien went round and re- rewrote most right. of the stuff. Yeah, yeah. So he didn't shirk that either. Right. No, <laughs> no. We just finished our chapters on Tom Bombadil in, in our recordings, and we remember looking at the different versions that you know, from mm-hmm. the original The Adventures of Tom Bombadil to the uh, to the published version in The Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings and and the changes. And you're right. I mean, all of that thanks to, to Aunt Jane and to Rainer and, and to how they you know wanted to see wanted more to see Tom, Tom in there more of Tom. Yeah. Well, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about some of your books on Tolkien's art. And we've already hit on the sort of the inception of J.R.R. Tolkien, artist and illustrator. I want to kind of go back to that. You've already told us about how that came to be and how Christopher Tolkien asked you to, to put that together. But before that work, I believe the most comprehensive study of Tolkien's art that was available was Pictures by J.R.R. Tolkien, which was 1979, if I'm not mistaken. But with artist and illustrator, the two of you went much deeper into Tolkien's early art and alternate versions and preliminary versions of, of works that, that came out later. Talk us through a little bit of that and why that approach uh, sort of appealed to you. It, it almost seems to me as, I don't want to put you know words in your mouth or anything, but it, it almost seems to me as sort of the, the history of Middle Earth version of Tolkien as, the, as an artist, showing these different mm. versions. But I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on that approach. I think one should start actually with pictures, which really was based, well, for a long time, Rayner and others wanted to add extra to mm. Tolkien. And they had the calendars. People wanted mm-hmm. calendars. There had been yes. a lot of calendars with art on Tolkien, but not by Tolkien. Right. We're thinking of the Hildebrands mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Sweet and a few others. And then they started putting out ones with art, with Tolkien's own art. But they tended to be blown right up. Mm. Mm, the pictures yeah. bigger than they were. And if you see the originals now, you'll realize that they were bigger, but also not all that well reproduced. Mm, but they mm-hmm. wanted to do a book on Tolkien's art. And I think Christopher, just they just used, they didn't even re-originate the art huh. for the uh, pictures. They just used it from the calendars. And obviously it was it was a stopgap. I think mm. Christopher himself felt that it was a stopgap mm, to what okay. we'd, uh, it was. Okay. Yeah, he certainly felt that. He, I think that that was told to us, but it was the best they could do at the time. I think it was the, the Tolkien, the calendars with Tolkien's own art came out, and, and then the... Uh, yes, they were 73, 74. Yeah, then, and then you had Tim Kirk, and you had the Hildebrands much later. Right. But the, yeah, Pictures was just a collection of the calendar mm-hmm. art, and when we started looking at the art, we were astonished to find how small many of the uh, yeah. pictures actually were in the original. So when we did Artist and Illustrator, we made the case that you really shouldn't blow them up mm-hmm. because it doesn't do them any good. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not necessarily uh, actual size. Sometimes the things had to be shrunk. But it was a, a discovery that we had to make. And we didn't want to do another pictures. And they didn't want to have another pictures. They wanted to have right. something that was, that was, you know, really about Tolkien as an mm-hmm. artist. That, right. that, you know, he was an artist. He wasn't just, uh, you know, somebody playing around. No. And the Tolkien estate, uh, Christopher Tolkien, wanted wanted this aspect of his father's life to be brought out as much as being mm-hmm. a writer was brought out. But, you know, having done Artist and Illustrator, we knew that there there were more things. There were, of course, many pictures that we, we couldn't put in the book because of space. 
And then, you know, it was great to have the opportunity to do the, the other two art books, The Art of the Hobbit, mm-hmm. The Art of the Lord of the Rings, because right. you know, we could bring in everything that at least that we knew about. Mm-hmm. We didn't ask for those. We were just asked to do them. They sort of arrived by email. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Are you interested in? Yes, please. The answer <laughs> is always yes, sure. right? I mean, <laughs> if the estate or HarperCollins reaches out to you, you say yes. I've always thought that some of Tolkien's art is very fine. And I think the recent Bodley and Morgan exhibitions mm-hmm. have really made people aware of him as an artist. Yes. We were aware of it. We did our best in artist and illustrator for this. But I think people have been really stunned. They didn't mm-hmm. expect how he's... And when you saw how big they blew them up to sort of yeah. six, seven foot tall and how well they stood up to the... Mm-hmm. The, the watercolors certainly are, yeah. are, are marvelous and they, they do hold up very well. We were astonished ourselves when we, um, when we came to do The Art of the Lord of the Rings. The, the Bodleian Library sent us electronic files of all of the pictures because again I was, mm. I was actually putting the thing together in the computer right and of course those are great because they were new pictures they were high definition yeah and you could zoom in on them mm-hmm. and we could see things that you you couldn't even it's funny you can't even see very well in the original because i was looking at at the you know bilbo woke the the eagle picture for the hobbit uh-huh. and there's there was some writing at the bottom that tolkien had sort of mostly painted over and in the electronic image you can zoom in on that and i could see what oh, it well. was but <laughs> just looking at it at the morgan it's hard to hard really hard mm-hmm. to see yeah. but what really what really surprised us when we we came to do the art of the lord of the rings and got the electronic files for that was all of the maps that we'd never seen before that we never even knew existed that's actually my very next question, so I'm going to actually cut okay. you off and start another question because the <laughs> okay. maps deserve their own. Yeah, well, great, great minds. Yeah. Well, since then, since artist and illustrator, you've continued to shed light on Tolkien's work as a visual artist with the art books that you just talked about, The Art of the Hobbit and The Art of the Lord of the Rings. In the introduction to the latter of those two, which was just published in 2015, you say, it is only right to consider Tolkien's cartography as art, no less than the other products of his pen or brush. We recently talked about the maps on an episode. I think we were we were talking about examples of cartography that I saw at the Bodleian Library last year. And we, of course, acknowledge that it's primarily Christopher's maps that readers are familiar with from the published books. Mm-hmm. Can you shed a little more light on Tolkien's cartography skills for our listeners and, and let them know where they might find some of his work uh, instead of the more familiar maps that we know from Christopher and others, like, uh, like Karen Fonstad's Atlas, for example? Of course, the Hobbit maps are his. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the Silmarillion, the history of Middle Earth, does have some original of the Silmarillion. Yes. Uh, oh, I didn't realize that. I thought some... the, the I thought the Silmarillion was was Christopher's. That's good to know. No, there's one there that is his father. There was a Silmarillion well, map there's... at the at the exhibitions, and there's that's several. It. There's mm. several. I mean, the you know, the Ambarkanta map and so forth, and then there are a number that Christopher redrew for right. clarity. Right. But in terms of the Lord of the Rings, I mean, there's that there's that often quoted phrase from Tolkien, wherever he did, you know, that I started with a map. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to start with a map. Otherwise, you can't, you can't go back and make a map. It was from afterwards. the letter to uh, Rona Bear, I believe, uh, if, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe. It's not entirely true. <laughs> of course. He didn't start with a map. He started writing. Of course, he started coming out of The Hobbit and doing the sequel right. of that. Well, The Hobbit did start with a map in a way because there's Thor's map. Right. Yes, I mean, and it was on the right. But the Lord, he was talking about the Lord yes. of the Rings, 
And I think the best that, that can be said is that he he made a map early yeah. and wisely. And that's the one that has got things pasted onto it and, and sort of goes out in, it grew organically. It goes out in, in every direction. Mm-hmm. I think he must have had, had map making skills that he learned from being in the army in World War mm-hmm. One. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. signal, signaling officer. I don't think we've, we've read anything about that, and- but... But I think that must that must have happened. It mu- you're right. There must be formal training. Um, people, there is a map which the old the catalog, the Judith Priestman catalog, thought was by Tolkien. But I think people yeah, are sure that it's not okay. by him. Mm. It was one that he happened to have because it was of the. Uh, it's a tre- it's a trench map, and those but, were those were produced uh, but, you know, very um, very quickly. Okay. He must have. He he presumably. Yeah, it's, as a communications officer. Skills. Yeah, signals officer. That makes sense. Because you, you look at those maps and you see evidence of formal training with the contour lines and the grid markers. And I mean, it's 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 breathtaking in its accuracy and detail. Mm. And it's just something that I don't think our average reader, the ones who maybe have not seen the exhibits at the Bodleian and the Morgan, uh, would necessarily have, uh, you know, have, a, have an understanding of. And I thought, you know, I was hoping that you could shed a little light on it. You already have, but you please do more. <laughs> he, he certainly had looked at maps and he understood the conventions of, of, mm-hmm. of map making. Mm-hmm. But what, what's interesting, of course, is that he was making a map of uh, a place that doesn't really right. exist. Yeah. So it was all out mm-hmm. of his imagination and he would set things down and he would revise it as the story developed. And then you had uh, successive maps. And of course you had the maps of the smaller areas uh, like the Shire and the surrounding territories mm-hmm. uh, that he would do. And of course in our book, we, we publish all of them that we know about yeah. or that have survived anyway. And uh, you can see how those those develop. And sometimes the story is different from the map and sometimes uh, it's, it's mm-hmm. the same. Mm-hmm. But it was it was something that we wanted to do in, in artist and illustrator, but we ran out of space. Yeah. And something had to give so that uh, we're very happy to be able to deal with the maps in Art of the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. I'm glad Another you did thing too. He does say somewhere that he never made people travel further in the day than it would have been physically mm-hmm. possible. Right. And there's all that thing with the hobbit strides and the and these giant strides and the rest of it, that he certainly would have known from marching how far right. the yes. army could go mm-hmm. in a day. Mm-hmm. And it's it's in one of the letters. Yeah. And this was again would have been something that would have affected his maps. He would always be looking, could they have got right. that far? Right. Right. Whether it was on foot or whether it's on horseback, whether it's a large group of people, small group of people. Yes. Right. Yeah. Somebody's injured, like uh, like after Weathertop, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Correct. This is something that isn't always uh, appreciated with Tolkien's writing is that he, although he was writing fantasy fiction, he was writing about uh, a world as mm-hmm. if it could exist. Right. So everything had to be grounded in right. reality. Mm-hmm. Something that when you get the uh, film adaptations, for example, and time gets compressed, mm-hmm. mm, you know, yeah. my goodness, that that was not any distance at all between uh, Isengard <laughs> yeah. and, and Minas Tirith. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. I'm just going to take a little jaunt from, <laughs> we'll be there in an hour. It's or just so. around the corner. Right. Yes. Or Gandalf going all the way to Minas Tirith for research and seemingly coming back the next day. Instead of, it, yeah, instead sure of 17 years yes, later, yes, right yes. away. Yeah. <laughs> you caught the Intercity Express, <laughs> exactly. and uh, there you go. Just hop on the interstate, right. and you're there in, in no time. Right. Man. It's just a, yeah. an hour's drive. 
Well, uh, <laughs> I'd like to I'd like to ask one more question about the the exhibitions because I did not make it to the Bodleian and I have not made it to the Morgan, but I do have the catalog uh, and I have I've yeah. uh, perused that pretty closely. And I want to ask you a little bit about uh, one of Tolkien's own comments about his his artistic ability that comes up in letter number 13 to C.A. Firth. Uh, this is where he called some of his own illustrations for The Hobbit amateurish. And, and this is, it's very striking to me that, you know, Tolkien had this opinion of his own artistic ability. As we've been talking about, you know, he was an artist. He was not just uh, like, oh, like, yeah. many, like many people of his time, as I, th- I think you say in your essay in that catalog, that many turn of the 20th century English men and women you know, took up drawing casually. But Tolkien was one of the rare few who was really good at it. He was not good at figures. Yeah, yeah. That's Sorry. true. No, you're right. I think he realized mm. that he was not good at figures. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he could actually, he sometimes, be, the ones he uses, well, in, in other Christmas letters mm. are stylized. Mm-hmm. Right. They, yeah. They're sure. for children almost. Yeah. And they work. They do. And it, he's much better at landscapes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's true. And you can even see that in how he scales the landscape and the, and the figures. Um, I'm thinking the of- Mirkwood uh, picture, or the Mirkwood picture? Uh, the one that's, that's yeah. Tarnafuan and Mirkwood, mm-hmm. the one that you know kind of yes. serves dual mm-hmm. purpose. And you can barely spot right. <laughs> the elves right. in that image because they're so tiny compared to the rest of the, of the drawing. Right. Uh, and you're right. It's uh, even even Bilbo comes to the huts of the raft elves. There's you know tiny Bilbo on a on a mm-hmm. barrel, and and that landscape you is know, this beautiful. massive landscape. And uh, yeah. oh, it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The most iconic images yes. we've seen. I wonder is that why he didn't think much of himself as an artist because he wasn't very good at figures. Well, uh, that may have entered into it. Uh, we don't have any direct quote on that. You know, he was he was certainly better than he he let on. Mm-hmm. He was modest in terms of his art. Uh, and in other things as well. But I think the the real issue was that he was always drawing for himself or for mm-hmm. his children. Uh, he was always working for a, a, a sympathetic sort of at-home mm. audience. Mm. And then all of a sudden, The Hobbit is going to be published. Oh, and yeah. it's going to be out there. Now, Tolkien is, is just as good an artist as Hugh Lofting for Dr. Doolittle or Arthur Ransom mm-hmm. for Swallows and Amazons. Uh, and in some ways better, certainly. I mean, they, they, mm-hmm. neither of them did watercolor pictures the way he did. But it was it was a matter of coming out into the public eye yeah. and mm-hmm. thinking he, you know, just not mm-hmm. not good enough. And, you know, you, you had the same thing when it came to the Lord of the Rings and he felt that his elvish lettering that was going to be reproduced, uh, like for the ring inscription, was just not, not delicate enough. It wasn't really elvish enough. But after after The Hobbit, during his lifetime, you you don't see any illustrations mm-hmm. by him. It's true. You know, he didn't do any for Farmer Jaws of Ham. Pauline Baines did those. And, you know, at one point was hoping that she could do something for The Lord of the Rings that was then being written. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he, you know, she did Smith mm-hmm. and Wooden Major and Adventures of Tom Bombadil. But Tolkien was not really as confident as he might have been as an artist in the public eye. Mm-hmm. When I've always thought it interesting that he did keep all the Father Christmas letters. Mm-hmm. Yes. He took them back from the children and they and they, they just evidently discovered them after his death mm-hmm. in an envelope. Mm. And he obviously felt they were worth keeping. Yeah. Or at any rate, perhaps it was the memory of, of doing it for the children. He yeah. did do a few for the Lord of the Rings, but it was mainly trying to work out what the place looked like. Mm. And I can imagine that if you read his description of Lothlorien, and 
lovely as his drawing is, and it really does look beautiful, nonetheless, it's not quite what Mm. he managed to do with words. That may be true. Yeah, you're right. I think that now, as Christina said, that that, uh, the the response to the exhibitions has been, and you, you get this in a lot of the reviews that have come out, they speak about the art, especially. Of course, in, in a in an exhibition, the visual is always going to you know be, sure. be paramount. But people have been generally surprised to see yeah mm-hmm. to see these things, and of course, see them in the original is is just wonderful. We yeah. do our best. Uh, the printers do their best in in our books, but there's you know, no substitute for looking at the original. That is true. And then buying our books. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. We have recommended those art books repeatedly and we'll continue to do so. They're, uh, they're phenomenal. But yeah, seeing them in person, I, I, I ended up at the exhibit three different times during the <laughs> five days that I was in England. I just couldn't help it. Uh, it was a, a fantastic exhibit. And being able to look, just stand there for 10, 15 minutes looking at all the details of one particular piece, preferably the maps. That's mm-hmm. what I tended to focus on. But they, they, they were amazing. And it, it does seem like we're seeing some of his his usual, like you mentioned, his modesty, his sort of self-deprecation. Mm-hmm. And it's it's encouraging to see that people are now noticing mm-hmm. what an amazing and appreciating that. Really yeah, was. absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Well, I know we're nearing the end of our time, so I'm gonna we're gonna probably just get a couple more quick questions in. In fact, we're gonna save a couple of these questions for when we see you <laughs> in uh, in Birmingham later this year. Uh, so we'll just go with this one first. We want to talk a little bit about your award-winning blog, Too Many Books and Never Enough. Uh, that's at wayneandchristina.wordpress.com. We'll put a link in our show notes uh, and in our social media links on this episode. That blog received the 2018 Tolkien Society Award for Best Website. Now, we recently sent listeners there for your addenda and core agenda to The Adventures of Tom Bombadil and that eye-opening letter by Tolkien to Neville Coghill in 1954. But there is so much there on Tolkien. C.S. Lewis uh, and other authors, book collecting, art, just everything. Mm -hmm. So listeners, please check that out. But I want to ask specifically about a blog post from September 2nd last year, reflecting on the 45th anniversary of Tolkien's death. You wrote, we had no idea then that so many unpublished works by Tolkien would be brought out over so many years, let alone that we, who had not yet met, would have a hand in the process. It must be beyond the wildest expectations that you could have had before to know that you have had a hand in the process. Can you share with our listeners a bit of of the emotions about your feelings about having been such an important part of bringing Tolkien's unpublished works to light for so many fans and readers. It's, um, you know, we sometimes will look at books we've published uh, sitting on the shelf Mm -hmm. and it's, it's very much as if someone else had done that. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting to think about it, the amount of work (laughs) that's gone into it. (laughs) But we do also think back to uh, when we were just fans Mm -hmm. And, and how one thing has led to another. Of course, being fans led to our meeting and mm-hmm. getting married. But, but yes, to, be, uh, to have had the opportunity and the, the privilege to do this kind of work, to do the research, to be uh, involved with the Tolkien family, mm-hmm. the estate, mm-hmm. to be able to uh, you know, enter into these great collections, and then to bring out things that uh, you know, seem to have some lasting value I think it's a very gratifying achievement. Mm. I'll take you back a little further to 1987 and Marquette. There was the, it was MythCon and it was Mm -hmm. the 50th anniversary of the publication Mm -hmm. of The Hobbit. And Christopher was there and 
he, of course, and so was Tom Santosky, who was alive, right. and John Ratcliffe and Douglas Anderson, yeah. all of whom had been in touch with Christopher. And during his discussions, their discussions with Christopher at the time, and we learned afterwards that Tom was going to be editing The Hobbit and that Doug was going to be doing an annotated mm -hmm. Hobbit. Right. And we looked at each other and said, wouldn't it be lovely if it was us? <laughs> Little did you know. Well, it wasn't those, but... Uh, no, no. John Ratcliffe, of course, got The Hobbit when uh, right. John died. Right, The History yeah. of the Hobbit. Yeah. But, you know, we were, we sort of with, we were on the, we were left outside, but we weren't. <laughs> yeah, only for a right. short time. That's right. Wonderful. I'm looking at our blog on a tablet and we haven't put up a post since last September. Oh, I think that's quite likely. We've been, uh, we've I know, but I thought it was only since, you know, maybe at the end of last year. Right. Well, you've had a few things going on. We, we've had a few things going on. Now you can say we were recently on the Prancing Pony podcast. You got something to blog about. <laughs> I mean, we haven't written anything about. Uh, we give our our talk on Tolkien as an artist in yeah. the Morgan Library at the end of January, and then a week later uh, was the private opening right. of the uh, the exhibition with a dinner, mm -hmm. and that was nice seeing seeing so many people there. And I'm sure Simon Tolkien was there. Okay. Ah, Simon was a guest on our show, and I sat next to Catherine in the dinner. Yeah. Very, yeah, very nice. Captain very, very nice. And but you know we haven't written about that, and there's all sorts of things that it's, uh, we, we, should just, get, we should get to. <laughs> well, we've just we've uh, we're not as bad as some some people with blogs. There you go. I'll say that. But we've also <laughs> been having work done on the house, which yeah. has meant moving books. Oh, right. oh goodness, yeah. yes. We had my uh, home office painted finally after so many years, and I don't know how many hundreds of books we just had to move out oh, of that room. Goodness, so, uh, that must have been we're a just project. Going back boy. in, yeah. Ah, uh, that was yeah, that was not fun. And for a librarian, they have to be put back exactly in the right positions, don't they? They have to be right where they need to be. Well, they, yeah, I'm doing some reshelving and and thinking, rethinking about things. You know, the whole thing with too many books and never enough, uh, this was uh, something that came out of when Christina was still living in London and had like 6,000 books in her little flat in Battersea. And uh, some of them were, were on the floor and I was walking across the room and I, I almost tripped over some. And I said, too many books. <laughs> and she said, never enough. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's wonderful. So um, she moved here. I had my books. She had her books. We weeded mm. duplicates and uh, have proceeded to add a lot more. So shelf space is always an issue. So we're continually <laughs> rethinking how things uh, are going to be organized. And uh, we had a bookcase. Right. And we had a bookcase. If you ever need here, to start well, clearing books out and you're looking to sell just them, just reach out to yeah. us. Let us know. We had a we had a major sale actually. Oh, um, how did I miss after that? After we got married, Christina moved over, and you know there was some. Some bargains in that one. But we did keep a lot of duplicates as working copies. Of course, yeah. And if you're a collector, you know that, that there sometimes are not not really duplicates, that there are small right. changes yep. that we mm -hmm. made. Yeah. But it's not just Tolkien that we have. And, well, no. Uh, we really ought to write write more mm -hmm. about uh, books in general on a blog that's called Too Many Books and Never Enough. <laughs> well, that's, that's what I love about your blog is the little bits that you have here and there on C.S. Lewis or Kenneth Graham or other authors that we might be interested in. So, Right. Uh, well, I know that we're going to be seeing you both very soon in Birmingham at Tolkien 2019. So we'll leave a, a couple of questions for when we see you there. But before we go, I'd like to give you an opportunity to, to share with us. Uh, is there anything else that you're working on that you'd like to talk about? You know, what's what's next for Wayne Hammond and Christina Skull? Well, 
know, putting the books back in order is, is, is the main thing right now. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and of course, I administer Rare Books Library, so there's there's that. <laughs> of course, the last thing we did was to prepare the uh, presentation, Tolkien as an Artist, for the Morgan. Mm-hmm. And right. just before that, we had the essay on Tolkien's art for the uh, Maker of Middle-Earth. We've been picking away for quite a while on uh, bibliography biography of sorts on Pauline Baines and all, all of her work. We have a major Pauline Baines collection. Mm. Oh, and wow. and okay. the Baines archive, in fact, is at Chapin Library here at Williams. But we don't have any uh, actual contracts for anything right now. But you know, okay. something else is, is obviously going to come up. <laughs> uh, it always does. <laughs> well, and I'm sure you're, you're well suited to take it on. So we're looking forward to that whenever it may we be. Are. In the meantime, thank you for joining us, Wayne and Christina. It has been a genuine treat to have you on the show. We really appreciate the time you've given to us and to our listeners. We would be happy, of course, to have you back on the show at any time. So please consider this a standing invitation. Well, thank you very thank much. Thank you. Well, thank you both so much. And listeners, that is going to wrap it up for another episode and for season three of the Prancing Pony podcast. That's right, folks. This is our last episode before we take a brief summer hiatus. We'll be back in early September with episode 136, coming to you from Tolkien 2019 in Birmingham. And as we mentioned earlier, Wayne and Christina will be joining us then as well, albeit for a much shorter segment. Now, while we are off, we are still going to be around on social media. Barlaman will still be bringing us the mail. And most importantly, we will still be working on getting ready for season four and book two of The Lord of the Rings. That's right. Now, even Sean and I need a small break once in a while, even if it's mostly from each other. <laughs> yeah, there, there is that. <laughs> yeah. So listeners, if you have any questions, just let us know on social media. We'll still be around uh, or by emailing Barnuman at the com. Now, as always, we want to remind you about the fellowship of the podcast. That's our family of supporters at Patreon. If you'd like to see how we're doing towards our Patreon goals, you can see those at patreon.com slash prancingponypod. And if you're looking for a new Tolkien book, check out the official library pages at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com, where we've put together a set of links for our listeners to all the books we've ever mentioned on the show, Tolkien And this or is probably otherwise. where I should recommend. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and I should probably recommend at this point any of the works by our current guests That's today. We, exactly. we shall have many yep. of those links up for you. Yep. Exactly <laughs> where I was going with that, Alan. You read my mind. Yep. And folks, if you wouldn't mind posting a review for us on iTunes, we'd be grateful. That increases our visibility, which means more new listeners, more great questions for Barlaman, more discussion on social media, and a more vibrant Tolkien community. And speaking of social media, it's also helpful if you share us. Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, wherever there are Tolkien fans, please let them know about us. Well, folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for making our common room on Facebook such a fun place to spend time. We want all of you to be a part of this conversation, and it does not stop when the episode ends. You can see the comments, questions, corrections, and more on Facebook at the Prancing Pony Podcast on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. And a very special thank you to our patrons at the Kierdans Contribution Tier, Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamson in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, and Chad in Texas. Thanks again. Make sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony Podcast by subscribing to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. One last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and most of all, what you're doing over the Prancing Pony Podcast summer hiatus to Barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com, and we'll try to get them into our next episode. Well, however long we've had, it's still far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends.